From 1984 through 1991, thousands of fires were intentionally set from Southern California to the Central Coast to the Central Valley and countless places in between. Homes, businesses, dry brush, nothing was off limits. The arsonist left virtually nothing behind in the way of evidence that could ever be traced back to him for years. The damage and destruction soared into the millions, countless millions, and four innocent lives were lost. The arsonist was brazen. He set fires with impunity, and he managed to get away with it for a long time until he finally slipped up and left behind a clue that would eventually lead investigators right to him. It was then that it became clear why this pyromaniac was able to set fire after fire after fire while managing to elude capture. He was one of them, often investigating the very fires that he was setting, busting arsonists while moonlighting as one. Driven by a desire for attention, to be a hero, to be the very best at arson investigation, to garner recognition for his dedication to his job, while he steadily rose through the ranks. But there was also an insatiable desire to feed his own sadomasochistic sexual urges, which for him was to watch things burn. It took investigators years to catch on to him. And even when he did come up as a possible suspect, nobody who knew him or worked with him were even willing to entertain the possibility that he was the arsonist that they sought. This only emboldened him even more and allowed for the devastation and destruction to continue for much longer than it should have. Even years later, there are still many who refuse to believe that he was responsible. Join me as I tell this story of the most prolific serial arsonist the state of California, possibly the entire country, had ever seen. You are listening to California Dreaming, and this is the tale of the Firestarter. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. As you know, California Dreaming is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your shows on. That helps give us more visibility and pushes us up the charts where new listeners can find us. You can also recommend us in True Crime Podcast fan groups on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you simply can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you will be able to binge dozens of exclusive full-length episodes. This week, I'd like to thank Justina W., Kate S., Marie P., Greg M., and Teen S. for either joining Patreon or raising their pledge. I'd also like to thank Sherry Ann, who reached out to me on Instagram this week about her Patreon account. We had to make some changes, but she has been such a longtime supporter like many of you have, and I appreciate you going through all of the trouble to try and figure out how to stick by us and keep on supporting. I'm very grateful for all of you. And if a subscription just isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation to the show through the email californiapod at gmail.com. Okay, let's get back to our story.
So in the last part, we left off with the Pillow Pyro Task Force having their prime suspect, which who they believe is responsible for a substantial number of arson fires that have plagued California from the Southland to the Central Valley to the Central Coast. They're going to have him placed under surveillance. We went through nearly 20 fires that were set in late 1990 through the spring of 1991. At that point, that is when it was decided that they needed this dedicated task force to investigate these arsons. This led them to speak to the one guy who was on the right track several years earlier but wasn't believed, Captain Marvin Casey. He told them what he had. It was a latent fingerprint. But due to a massive error with the ATF fingerprint expert, the match was overlooked and Marvin Casey was told to move on. The task force felt like they needed to talk to him because they needed to get that fingerprint. And while they were skeptical about his theory that it was a firefighter that was responsible for all of these arsons, all that skepticism fell away when they ran the fingerprint one more time for good measure through a database that was not only comprised of criminals in Los Angeles County, but also every law enforcement officer and everyone who attempted to apply with law enforcement, all of their fingerprints were in there too. And boom, they got a match. The fingerprint belonged to veteran arson investigator, city of Glendale fire captain, aspiring author, and wannabe goober cop, John Leonard Orr. It was tough to accept, and many people couldn't, Many wouldn't. Many flat out refused. But not the task force. And not law enforcement either. Unless they could find a plausible explanation as to why Orr's fingerprint was on a crucial piece of evidence linking him to the arsons, then they were going to be faced with the very real possibility that it was a trusted member of the firefighting brotherhood that was responsible for setting countless fires all over the state of California. In the last part, we left off with the surveillance team having observed the non-smoking John Orr purchasing two packs of cigarettes from a thrifty drugstore in the city of San Luis Obispo, California. So we're going to pick up our story from there. On Wednesday, May 1st, 1991, the agent in charge of the Pillow Pyro Task Force, ATF agent Mike Matassa, he went to San Luis Obispo because he was absolutely convinced that they were going to catch John Orr red-handed setting a fire somewhere when he had some downtime from the training sessions. He really wanted to be there when they got him. They were pretty sure that Orr was going to strike when the training was over and he would be driving back to Glendale. So that whole first day was quiet and so was the next. And I'm sure the surveillance team was pretty bored. They didn't even have cell phones back then to play with while they were waiting around. The only thing that broke up the monotony was when a couple of guys from the surveillance team went out to dinner and got to meet former Oakland Raiders coach John Madden. So the last day of training was Friday, May 3rd. This was it, and the surveillance team was ready for whatever John Orr had in store. Over the course of the week, the only thing that they knew for sure is that Orr never once stepped outside for a smoking break. So they knew that he had not suddenly become a smoker. He had those cigarettes that he purchased with him still. And they were sure that 
they knew what he intended to do with them. So that afternoon, when it was time for lunch, Orr went out to his car. He got in and started driving. They were watching him from the ground and from the air. For some reason, Orr suddenly pulled into a parking lot and parked his car. They watched as Orr got out and went around to the back of it. And then they all saw when Orr caught a glimpse of something odd under his car. That damn antenna on the tracking device had moved slightly and was suddenly visible. They saw Orr kind of crouch down and look at it more closely. The surveillance team freaked out. They got on their radios. We got to pick him up. Our cover is blown. It's over. It's over. We got to take him in. But April Carroll, the sensible, of course, the only female on the task force, told everybody to hold their positions. They looked on as they watched a very, very agitated or jump back into his car and he peeled out of the parking lot full speed as fast as he could to the San Luis Obispo Police Department. He tore into the parking lot, threw it in park, jumped out, ran inside. The task force members were beside themselves. They didn't know what they were going to do, and they were certain that they had blown their entire case. Agents April Carroll and Ken Croak parked and waited near the police station. Orr didn't know them. As fast as Orr darted into the police department, he had rushed right back out, jumped back in his car and peeled off again. Carol radioed everyone to hang tight. They were going to go in and see what happened. When they talked to the desk sergeant, they were told that Orr told him who he was and that he suspected that there was a bomb attached to his vehicle. But Orr didn't want their help. He didn't want them to call the bomb squad. He wanted to know how to get to their explosives, ordnance disposal units, and demolition range. I didn't know what this was until I read this in Wamba's book. But yeah, it's this place where they take explosives to be neutralized or detonated. So yeah, Orr was headed over there. Now, they didn't just tell Orr how to get there without suggesting that maybe they should contact their bomb expert instead of him driving his car anymore with the potential of a bomb being attached to it. And now to me, with Orr tearing in and out of the parking lots, he is not driving like a person who is afraid of there being a live bomb attached to his car. So I'm already thinking that he knows what's up. He probably knows it's a tracking device and he knows that he's being watched. But Orr declined the help, telling the desk sergeant that he was a bomb expert himself, and since he had already driven from his hotel to the police station without any issues, he would be fine taking himself to the range. As Orr drove towards the range, he was pushing his Crown Victoria as fast as it could possibly go. The range was outside of town, of course, dirt roads, to get there would have to be far away from just about everything if that's where they're going to be blowing shit up right the team just had kept their eyes on the dust cloud that Orr was kicking up as he sped along in the meantime the surveillance team were chewing each other out about how to put a tracking device on a car properly they were all pissed off before Orr could get to the bomb tech at the range 
They needed to call the guy first to let him know what's going on. And they needed to come up with some BS story to tell Orr when he got there to try to minimize the damage that was being done here. They decided they were just going to go ahead and roll with the bomb story and have the technician tell Orr that it is fake. He arrived at the range and the technician, aware that it's a tracking device, went ahead and got under the car and took it off. And he told Orr, yeah, this is an old piece of junk. It's virtually harmless. It's probably a prank and he'd go ahead and keep it and look into it more. And he would warn everybody that they just can't pull pranks like this. It didn't seem like Orr really bought the story. I mean, as much of a dim-witted imbecile the guy was, he wasn't really that stupid. So he grabbed his camera and took pictures of the device as well as its serial number. And with that information, for sure, he would be able to trace that item back to the ATF if he ran the numbers. Later on that day, Orr went back to the hotel and finished out the training session. His wife also showed up, having taken a train from Glendale to join him. So when she arrived, they knew that Orr wasn't going to do anything now. He never, ever went with anyone else to these things. He had never taken his wife. They even stayed a couple extra nights in San Luis Obispo. They traveled home together on Sunday, May 5th. Their surveillance team felt defeated. A couple of days later, Orr called to follow up on the device that was removed from his car. He called the technician at the uh, range. And he was told, yeah, it was a dummy device. There was nothing in it. It was a prank or whatever. The bomb expert called the task force and told them what he told John Orr. The pillow pyro team began to feel comfortable that Orr might have believed what he was being told. So they were going to go ahead and continue on investigating him. They were pretty sure that Orr would be back at it because somebody like him can't help himself. But Mike Matassa, the lead agent, he was pretty sure Orr was thinking that something was up. Like he knew. The task force discussed at length what the best thing to do about Orr would be. They could take him into custody now and they'd be able to put him away on the one arson where he left his fingerprint and then try to connect him to all the other fires. Or they could continue looking for eyewitnesses who might be able to identify Orr as having been near the origin of the fires just before they broke out. However, if Orr believed that the device on his car was a fake bomb joke, maybe he would start a new arson spree. And if he did, they would be certainly watching him. But the consequence to that was, what if somebody died? That would be on their watch. They couldn't let that happen either. It was decided to continue to let Orr go about his life while they hung back and observed. The thing is, ever since the task force was formed, there had not been one single fire anywhere. And they figured that was what was keeping Orr from striking again. Perhaps he was going to use the San Luis Obispo trip to start up again, but they blew that. And who knows when he would do it again. It could be for some time. Not everybody thought that Orr would be scared out of ever setting another fire because if he's truly a pyromaniac, he's not going to be able to help himself. It's like his addiction. In fact, Orr might just be the kind of person 
who gets off on the fact that he's able to stay one step ahead of the task force because we know he has such a grandiose perception of himself. Another month had passed with nothing happening, no fires, nothing. It was all quiet. Agent April Carroll left the task force to take on a new assignment. Mike Matassa was about to be reassigned too. While they were still waiting to get a recent picture of John Orr, the picture of him on his ID card, his driver's license, was too old. So they came up with this plan to get a picture of him. And Orr was a guy who was really full of himself. So they asked the arson unit to ask if any of their investigators wanted to pose for pictures for a promotional shoot that they were doing for the fire department. And no surprise, John Orr was more than happy to lend his good looks for the photo shoot, right? The task force finally had a picture that they would be able to show to witnesses in a photo array. This time, they weren't going to ask if they saw any of these men at the time the fire started. The question would be, have you ever seen any of these men shopping in the store? And it seemed to be working. An employee at the People's Department store picked out Orr out of the photo array and said she had seen him shopping at the store several times. An employee at DNM Yardage picked out Orr and said she saw him shopping near the curtain display 15 minutes before the fire started. So with this new way of asking witnesses and having a good recent picture of John Orr with them, they were making some headway. When the task force laid everything out, all of the timelines of all the fires and compared that to everything that they got related to Orr's work records, and this included the times that he called out of work, work logs, reports, telephone records, for every single arson fire at the exact date and time that those fires erupted, John Orr was never at work. He was out of the office. He was never with any of his partners. He was completely unaccounted for for every single fire. In June of 1991, John Orr got in touch with a literary agent in New York. Orr had gone to some fancy pants book signing event in Beverly Hills, and he hit the author up about getting his own book published, of course. So the author suggested his agent to him. The agent told Orr to go ahead and get him a copy of his manuscript, He also sent a copy to some writer's evaluation service. He paid them $300 to critique his manuscript and to tell him if it was worthy of being published. And you know, Jamers, honestly, even if this critiquing service had came back and told him his writing was crap, John Orr would have told them that they were a bunch of idiots and didn't know what they were talking about because that's how John Orr is. The following month, the task force pulled itself back together again. It was going to be Mike Matassa, Greg Lucero, and Ken Croak. They wanted to prosecute the case against Orr, but just as they were discussing their next move, another arson investigator conference popped up in Fresno again, and it would take place starting Wednesday, July 31st through Friday, August 2nd, 1991, and Orr was slated to attend. They hoped that whatever was holding Orr back from setting fires had subsided and that he would take this opportunity to get started again. But they really wanted to catch him in the act. 
on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 30th, or took off for Fresno. He went his usual warp speeds, driving as fast as he could. The surveillance team, this time, were not going to use the tracking device under his car, no aircraft. They were going to do their best in their cars to keep up and keep track, but it wasn't going very well. The first problem that came up was that their lead car, which had the power to keep up with Orr's speed, ended up overheating. They rushed over to pick their guy up and to try to catch up with Orr again. But even going 100 miles or 160 kilometers per hour the whole way, their surveillance team was never able to catch up with Orr until he got to Fresno and finally stopped. But they did have someone at the seminar ahead of Orr, so that agent was able to watch as Orr arrived and checked in. The next day, he was at the first seminar session. The surveillance team were situated in strategic places where they could keep an eye on him at all times, but they were pretty nervous. Orr ended up leaving the session early at about 2.30 that first afternoon, and he didn't come back. The team on the outside was told that Orr had left. About a half hour later, an agent that was parked near the Fresno Convention Center suddenly noticed some smoke coming from somewhere near the building. He headed over there and found a dumpster bin on fire. He put out the fire, and inside the bin was some plastic foam, among some other trash. The team started thinking that John Orr was now playing games. Was he on to them? They just really had no idea. Nothing happened on August 1st. Then on the next day, August 2nd, first thing in the morning, without attending the training session, Orr checked out, packed his luggage in his car, and before he got in, he got down on the ground and looked under his car for a device. He didn't see anything. He drove back home. Nothing happened. No fires. Just one really, really fast drive. They were going to have to come up with a new plan because this investigation was going nowhere fast. It just so happened that around this time, the sheriff's department had just received a brand new tracking device that had never been used yet. So Orr wouldn't have any idea what it was or that anyone was using it. Orr was about to become the first person the department was going to use this new piece of equipment on. Remember I mentioned the other device required the person tracking the vehicle to be in close proximity to it, like they had to be following a certain distance away? This one didn't require that. And just remember, this is the early 90s, so technology isn't anywhere near what it is today. So with this, they'd be able to track him remotely. They would have like this electronic map, and the tracker would beep on the screen in real time what they would need to do now is just wait until or would drop off his city vehicle for its scheduled maintenance because this particular tracking device would go inside behind the dashboard it would be connected to the electrical system of a car and it would be powered by the car's own battery and the dashboard would have to be disassembled in order for anyone to even see it so there's no way that or would ever be able to find it like he did the one at the bottom of his car. So while they waited for Orr's car to come in for a service, the task force continued to travel to as many of the arson locations as they possibly could to talk to witnesses to see if anybody could pick Orr out of their photo lineup. 
Matassa and Croak traveled to California Central Valley. It was very rural. So these city guys not only stood out like a sore thumb because they just kind of looked like cops. Whenever they walked into a place, everybody stared. In the meantime, back down in Southern California, Greg Lucero found a witness from the North Hollywood Builders Emporium fire who was able to identify or as the person that she saw near the origin of the fire sometime before it started. A deeper dive into Orr's work records revealed that of the 19 fires that took place between December 10, 1990 and March 27, 1991, John Orr had been at work every single one of those days, but was not present at anything that Glendale firefighters were called out to. If he had been at any location with the Glendale Fire Department for any of those fires in their city, then their whole theory would have been up in smoke, literally. But his whereabouts could not be accounted for for every single one of those fires set in all of those businesses. And he was never with his partner on any of those days either, which he should have been. His partner, Joe Lopez, was either at a training event, off doing some other work, or off work altogether every single time. This was turning out to be way too much, way too many times, for this to be just a coincidence. The task force was working with one thing in mind, having enough evidence for the U.S. attorney to give them an arrest warrant. But the one thing they really wanted was for Captain Marvin Casey to provide them with a sworn affidavit that John Orr never came in contact with the yellow piece of paper that had his fingerprint on it while it was in Casey's possession. It was a piece of evidence that Casey had had for more than four years. They needed to know that Orr never, ever touched it since the time it was collected. So you know what that means. Marvin Casey was finally going to learn that he had been right all those years ago. He was finally going to have his in-your-face moment with everybody who laughed at him. I'm kidding, but I'm sure he was more of like an I told you so kind of guy. Bottom line, he was right and he was vindicated. So Mike Matassa called him up and asked, was there any time that John Orr came in contact with the incendiary device that he collected? Captain Casey said, nope, not a chance. The two of them talked for a little bit. Matassa told him that they wanted to tell him about the investigation, but at the time they couldn't. The one thing Casey did want is that he wanted to be there when John Orr was taken into custody. Matassa said when they were ready, they would call him. After they hung up, Marvin Casey felt really good about his role in solving the case. After everyone had told him his theory was ridiculous, what he really wanted was to be acknowledged for having solved it, and he deserved it. Toward the beginning of October 1991, Orr's manuscript, the novel that he was writing, suddenly came up as a topic of discussion with the task force. They learned of it back in April, or when Orr's boss had mentioned it, but they kind of blew it off. What brought the whole thing back up was Orr's boss had actually found his assistant typing something up for Orr. It had to do with his manuscript. He was sending it out and he needed a letter sent with it. That's what the assistant was typing. Orr's boss glanced at it and he saw that the subject of his novel was a firefighter turned arsonist. So he told the task force about it. And that is when the task force wanted to get their hands on a copy of it. The very next day after they had this discussion about Orr's manuscript, 
a fire broke out in the hills above Glendale again. That October day was particularly hot. You know, if you live in Southern California, it's not uncommon for there to be a fall or middle of the fall heat wave. And this felt like one of them. The fire started right off the side of the road and grew so quickly it was moving straight towards some homes. Within minutes, the first structure caught on fire. Sheriff Deputy Rich Edwards got there to the scene. He knew that the task force had been waiting for an opportunity to put that teletrack device in Orr's car, but they hadn't had a chance to do it yet. So he looked around for John Orr when he got there, but he didn't spot him right away. But just a couple minutes later, there was Orr in his car. Orr and Edwards talked, and they both came to the conclusion that this fire was indeed an arson. The problem with these brush fires is this. The task force had not been all that interested in these brush fires or told to look into any of them. In fact, they paid absolutely no attention to this fire when it happened. And it was because they were so focused on fires that had been set inside of retail businesses. They didn't even consider or may have been setting brush fires too, even though he showed up to so many of them. They simply weren't thinking about him straying outside his usual modus operandi. Then Orr did kind of a strange thing, not surprisingly. I mean, what is odd for a guy like John Orr to begin with, am I right? But what he did was actually going to help them possibly get access to that manuscript of his. Orr actually called up the Los Angeles Fire Department and asked if there was anybody who worked for their department by the name of Aaron Stiles or anyone who had that last name. He explained that he was an aspiring novelist. His story was about a firefighter named Aaron Stiles, and he just wanted to confirm that there was nobody in the department by that name or anyone with that last name because his book was fiction, and he didn't want to use the name of an actual firefighter and run the risk of possibly anyone filing a lawsuit against him. Whoever fielded that call quickly contacted the task force. He was like, your firebug just called up asking about names of firefighters because he didn't want to use anyone's real name in his book. Now, as I said, they were anxious to get a copy of this manuscript. They first went and asked a relatively popular filmmaker who had been making movies about firefighters to possibly be introduced to John Orr and maybe asked to see his manuscript that he might want to turn it into a screenplay and into a movie. But once they explained to the filmmaker what they needed him to do, he got kind of spooked, especially when one of the members of the task force accidentally said the word informant. That scared him. Like, what if Orr finds out that it was all a ruse and wants to seek revenge? This movie maker was, no, I don't want any part of it. And he backed out. The next idea was that they wanted to talk to a retired arson investigator turned writer. And it was also a person that John Orr knew very well. His name was A.A. Jakubowski. And they asked him if he would give Orr a call kind of make some small talk or whatever and bring up that you heard he's writing a book. Is there anything that he needs help with? Maybe we can bounce ideas off each other. Perhaps we can check out each other's manuscripts. John Orr jumped at the chance. I mean, Jakubowski was totally stroking this guy's ego. So within 24 hours, A.A. Jakubowski had a copy of John Orr's manuscript 
in his mailbox the very next day or had sent it overnight. And then it was turned over to the Pillow Pyro Task Force. Copies for everybody. They all started reading as soon as they got their hands on it. When they got to Chapter 6, John Orr wrote of a fire at a home improvement store called Cal's, located in South Pasadena. It was a blaze that took the lives of five people, including a toddler named Matthew. This piqued everybody's interest, because as far as they knew, in all the fires that they've investigated, there hadn't been any deaths. Now, they were faced with the real possibility that John Orr may have some blood on his hands. John Orr finally brought his car in for the scheduled oil change and whatnot, so the task force was able to get the Teletrack device installed in his dashboard. On the first day that they officially got to track Orr's movements, it was Friday, November 22, 1991. They would be able to track him remotely just about everywhere in the greater Los Angeles area. They were going to not only be able to see where he's at at all times, but it also tracks his distance and time that he travels to. They would be able to print up all that data and they could look at actual hard copies of where John Orr was going, where he had been, how long it took him to get there, etc., etc. And the very first printout that they got that day raised everybody's eyebrows. On that first day around 3.30 in the afternoon, the fire inspector for the city of Burbank, California, was commuting to his work when he noticed some smoke rising in the sky. As he started to head towards the smoke, he began hearing the calls go out about a fire at the Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank. Fortunately, and apparently because I did not know this, the studio had its own fire engine. When the inspector got there, the engine was getting set up to begin fighting the flames. The set was for the classic TV show, The Waltons. That's what was on fire. Shortly after the inspector arrived, the arson investigator with the city of Burbank showed up. He was Captain Steve Patterson. They began discussing the fire. And things like this on studio lots and whatnot, these things were usually caused by something electrical. But as they investigated the scene, there wasn't anything electrical that seemed to have to have been the cause. But they still thought that that was the reason that it had to be, even if it wasn't immediately obvious. They took a look at burn patterns and it seemed like there may have been some accelerant used, but they had a difficult time interpreting the patterns and the direction that the fire moved. The problem is the arson investigator had only been on the job for less than two years, so his experience was pretty limited. Because of this, he decided to call for the assistance of the most experienced arson investigator in Southern California, none other than Captain Goober John Orr. The reason John Orr came to mind so quickly is he had just taken one of Orr's classes earlier that morning. He admired Orr's work and thought of him as somebody that he can learn a lot from. When Orr called him back, he said he'd be more than happy to help. And, you know, he just so happened to be practically right around the corner. What are the chances, right, you guys? He had met up with a friend for some drinks or something stupid like that. He said he'll be right there. Now, according to the book Fire Lover, Orr did something else really bizarre at this point. Surprise, surprise. He told Captain Patterson that he didn't exactly know the area very well. Could he give him some directions? Personally, I think John Orr is kind of trying to play dumb. 
which isn't difficult for him to do. So Patterson tried to give him directions, but Orr said, I'm having a really hard time. Can you just come and meet me out on the main street outside the studio? The sun had already set, so it was dark. So Orr instructed him to have a flashlight with him so he could see him when he pulled in. He was sure he was only a minute or two away. So Patterson went out to the main entrance of the Warner Brothers studios and waited. And he waited. And he waited. No John Orr. After 15 minutes or so, he went to his car and radioed Orr back like, where are you? And John Orr was like, oh, I'm inside. I've been waiting for you. Orr told him he was already investigating the Walton's TV show set. Patterson was annoyed and confused. The guy just told him he had no idea how to get to the studio, yet he manages to make his way all the way into the scene of the fire on his own. Whatever. Patterson just decided to drop it. He appreciated Orr coming out to help. The two investigators discussed the fire and what they saw. Orr had come to the conclusion that this was definitely an arson. Patterson went ahead and agreed. Orr never brought up how he found his way to the studio so quickly without any help. And he also didn't tell Patterson that he was there earlier that afternoon either. Later on, Orr would provide an explanation about that afternoon of the Warner Brothers fire. He said he told his partner, Joe Lopez, to go ahead and take the rest of the day off, which is part of his M.O., right? Orr explained that he told his friend that he would go with her to her daughter's parent-teacher conference that afternoon, and that school just so happened to be really close to the Warner Brothers studio. And while he was in the area, he saw the plume of smoke, and he heard the calls come in for the fire at the studio on his radio. So he decided since he was close by that he would go over there and videotape the fire for the classes that he teaches. But when he tried to drive there, traffic was really congested, so he decided to go back to the school instead. And then later on, he got the call from Captain Patterson for help, and since he had already seen the smoke earlier, he knew where to go, and he got there quicker than he thought he would. So he told the guard at the entrance to let Patterson know that he made it in. Later on, Orr denied that he was in agreement with Patterson that the fire was an arson. He just said that because he was tired and he didn't want to argue. What investigator Steve Patterson did not know, nor was he ever told that evening, that John Orr's wife was an employee at Warner Brothers Studios. He had been to the lot many, many times, but he acted like he had never been there prior to the afternoon of the fire when he was called to help. It wasn't until later that he also learned that Orr showed his investigator's ID at the walk-in gate just minutes after the fire had started, and he walked onto the studio lot. And for a short while, he stood among the bystanders and watched the TV set as it became engulfed in flames. The task force learned very quickly about the studio fire and that Orr was present at the scene a couple times that day. So the whole thing he did with Scott Patterson and pretending like he didn't know where he was going or what to look for, it was all bullshit. Unfortunately, the teletrack device didn't work all that well for the task force in this instance. It showed him at the studio lot around 6.18 p.m., which is when he was called by Patterson for help with the investigation. It did not pick up any signal that Orr was there any earlier in the day. 
He was in the area like he said he was going to be, but it didn't show him on the lot, at least not his vehicle. So the task force wondered what actually happened. Maybe he didn't take his car in. Maybe he drove with his wife. Maybe he suspected there was a tracking device on his car. They really had no idea. The one thing that they did know is that he was trying to hide something. He lied to Patterson about not knowing how to get to the studio, but he was seen there just a couple of hours before they were called there, and his wife worked there. But don't forget, we do know that the gate guard at the studio entrance saw Orr and checked his ID as he came in through the pedestrian gate, so he could have had his car parked close by, but like the tracker had shown, but he went the rest of the way onto the studio lot on foot. Okay, so in Wamba's book, it discussed the thing that happened the day after the Warner Brothers studio fire that was really strange and very suspicious, and people really took notice, even though it may have easily been overlooked. But it was a testament as to how much everybody in the Southern California firefighting community was on high alert about what was going on. Nearly everybody was in on the investigation into John Orr. And it was lucky that word did not get back to him, considering how many people were in the know. So the day after the fire at the Warner Brothers studio, this would be November 23rd, 1991, the task force was anxiously waiting for Captain Peterson to finish his report about the fire because they wanted to see if there was anything conspicuous about John Orr's behavior since their tracker didn't provide them with the information that they needed. Meanwhile, a Los Angeles Fire Department arson investigator by the name of Gary Seidel just so happened to be driving along Interstate 210. It runs from like about Pasadena. I've taken it to the 15 interchange that takes you to Las Vegas. I think the east side of the 210 ends just before you get to the San Bernardino National Forest and you get on the 15 north to head out of Southern California towards Southern Nevada. But anyway, Gary Seidel was driving along the freeway in his city-issued vehicle. And just as he was about to exit, he noticed the driver in a white car next to him. It happened to be John Orr. And he knew Orr, so he tapped his horn and they saw each other and they gave the courtesy wave and then they went along their way. Seidel did have his son with a couple of his friends riding with him in the back seat. As I said, a lot of people, especially higher-ups like Gary Sedell, they were in the know about the investigation into John Orr, that he was the prime suspect for being the serial arsonist. And while that's the benefit of a case like this and, you know, letting a lot of people know what's going on when they usually keep things so secretive, but it's like they had to let everybody know because the arsonist was so very active the biggest fear looming over them was if somebody was killed in any of the fires that were set while they were trying to build their case against John Orr. But anyway, Seidel kept his eye on Orr's vehicle for as long as he could and watched it as he continued on. Fifteen minutes later, Gary Seidel saw a plume of smoke rising towards the sky and fire engines racing with lights and sirens towards where he had just come from off the freeway. As he drove, he instructed his son to write down some of the details for him about where and when he saw Orr just before this fire began. It was a little before 2.30 that afternoon. It was a Saturday. Just a couple of minutes before Seidel noticed the smoke and asked his son to write down some notes, the first calls about the fire had come into dispatch. 
The location was so close to all the other brush fires in the foothills of Glendale. The fire grew very quickly, so more engines were called to report to it, and the Glendale arson investigators were also contacted. But before the dispatcher was able to contact John Orr by radio, he radio dispatched first that he was already headed to the location of the fire. Then something else interesting happened. Another fire was reported. The call came in to dispatch. So the dispatcher made contact with one of the fire engines and instructed them to head to the second fire call instead of the first one. No other engines and no other fire department personnel were radioed to attend the second fire except for that one unit. But for some reason, one other person redirected himself to the second fire. Captain John Orr. It was a call that did not go out over the radio frequencies. It was only radioed to one fire engine. Nobody had any information about the second fire when it was called in or where it was located, yet somehow John Orr ended up there. Another engine that was headed towards the first fire actually never got to that fire because as they were headed there, they spotted yet another fire down the hill from the first one. So they stopped to attend to that instead of going to the other one. That w- and this one was getting very close to some houses. It appeared to have started at the side of the road and was moving uphill very quickly, but they managed to extinguish it in just a couple of minutes, luckily. However, in just that small window of time that they took to put that fire out, firefighter Dennis Imler noticed suddenly that John Orr was on the scene too. This was bizarre because... He ended up at that fire by chance when he was passing by. When he heard the call go out for this third fire, he noticed that dispatch had actually given the wrong location over the radio and the engine that was supposed to have come to that fire was headed the wrong way and never actually made it. So how the hell did John Orr end up there when literally the wrong information had been broadcasted? Then another engine was redirected to the second brush fire that had been reported And as that engine began to head in that direction, the crew on that truck noticed that behind them, with lights and sirens going, was none other than John Orr. And they were confused because they had just heard Orr say on the radio that he was at the location of the first fire. It would have been impossible for him to have been right behind them. So the next day, an arson investigator from the sheriff's department had come out to take a look at the scenes of the fires. Because of all the water that had been used to extinguish the flames, It caused a mudslide over the area of the point of origin of one of the fires, so it was impossible to look at the exact spot where the fire had started. But it was theorized that the first fire was set for the purpose of being a diversion, to draw firefighters to the area so they would be busy while the arsonists went and set more fires. And those ensuing fires would be allowed to burn for longer periods of time because all the firefighters would be busy at fire number one. The task force just really couldn't hold off any longer. A TV show set was lit on fire at the Warner Brothers studio. John Orr was right there in the middle of it all. Brush fires broke out in Glendale and Orr was seen by many people all over the place. In some places where it wasn't even possible for him to be there unless he had prior knowledge of the fires. Nobody knew. Nobody knew the locations. They weren't broadcasted. Wrong information was sent out. Yet Orr managed to somehow find his way to every fire on his own. For a while, the task force had thought that Orr had backed off from setting fires, 
because of the task force, because it was created to investigate the arsons. But maybe John Orr thought the task force is looking for retail store fires being started in bins of pillows and foam. I'll just start setting fires in other places like TV studios and dry hillsides. That'll throw him off, right? Everyone was worried that if they didn't stop him, that they'd have a repeat of the College Hills fires from the end of June the previous year when he sent his partner to the symposium and he stayed back, ostensibly to work. And just as a reminder, this was the fire that I discussed at length in part three, where 46 homes were destroyed with a total of $50 million in damage, or that was 1990, $50 million. They needed to stop or and they just could not wait any longer. In the book Fire Lover, we jump ahead about two weeks to Wednesday, December 4th, 1991, which just so happened to be my 17th birthday. It was also the day that John Leonard Orr's life as he knew it, his days of firefighting and fire starting, were over. Author Joseph Wamba, he shared Orr's own recollection of what happened that day as he wrote it down or journaled about it or something like that. So I wanted to read that excerpt to you so you can hear this in Orr's own words as he experienced it. Even though I'm not a huge fan of Orr's writing style, I'll share it with you because why not, right? So Orr wrote, At 7.10 a.m., I walked out of my house to find a cool, clear day, and a man crouched behind a neighbor's juniper bush. Odd sight. Even odder was the fact that he had a gun. My first thought was to reach for my own off-duty weapon, a Walther PPKS 380 Magnum in my hand, but it was in a zippered case. An LAPD black and white pulled halfway into my driveway. I looked back at the juniper and saw I recognized the man. He was an LAFD arson investigator and a friend. John, John, don't move. Stay where you are. The shouts came from behind a camper parked in front of my house. I recognized Larry Cornelson, head of the LA area ATF office who was holding a gun as he jogged towards me. He repeated, don't move, you're under arrest. Wanda, step inside, I heard myself say as Cornelson ordered me to put my hands on top of the car. John, you're under arrest. For what? Arson. Arson? I couldn't believe it. I was quickly handcuffed and led to a plain Ford parked on the street. I counted at least five undercover cars and saw people I'd worked alongside for 12 years. Rich Edwards and Walt Sherrell of the LASD arson. Tom Campuzano and Glenn Lasaro of the LAFD arson unit. And Mike Matassa of the ATF. There appeared to be more than 10 investigators in front of my house. Glancing over my shoulder, I took a last look. Wanda was being shown paperwork at the front door, where Domino joyously barked at all the attention he'd received. A piece of paperwork now in Wanda's hands was a search warrant, I was sure. I wasn't worried, however. I'd done nothing wrong. 
we didn't even cheat on our taxes. Larry Cornelson rode in the back seat of the Ford with me as I was driven by Mike Matassa to the LAPD Northeast Division. There, I was paraded past several uniformed officers while being taken into an interview room. By the way, dreamers, while they were driving over there or had asked them what this whole thing was about, even though they already told him he was being arrested for arson, I guess he had to just feign ignorance or something. They told him that they would talk about it when they got to the station. How's it going, John? I looked up to see Officer Will, the beat cop who worked the day watch in my neighborhood. I shook my head as I passed him, not knowing what to say. His query was neither contemptuous nor probing, just a greeting. I don't think he knew I was handcuffed. I was outraged and confused, prepared to strike out at anyone handy, particularly those ATF idiots. And dreamers knowing what we know about John Orr and how he feels about law enforcement, and all the times that this man has felt humiliated or less than, this must have been one of the lowest points in his life ever. When it came to his ego, the indignity of it all was probably unbearable. John's writing of that morning continued. The interrogation was brief and inept. I was shown an affidavit supporting the search warrant. Matassa took the lead, obviously the case investigator. Cornelson didn't allow for it long, though. Matassa faltered somewhat, expecting an immediate confession. The lack of response baffled Matassa, and Larry attempted to gain some headway by making a half-assed compliment about my reputation. So... As they sat in the interrogation room, they read or his rights, and they didn't mince words. They've built this case against him. It involves a great deal of evidence, including a fingerprint, or asked how many points the print had, and he was told it was 13. You listening might already know what this is, but if you don't, when an expert matches up fingerprints, he or she looks for matching points when comparing. Some experts will accept 12 points, while others insist on 20. Orr's print had 13 points that matched up to the print that was lifted from one of the delay devices. He wanted to know how many prints they had, but they wouldn't tell him. Orr claimed that they were playing games with him, tell him what his motive would be to do all this, but they ignored his demand for answers. Cornelson continued, When we developed you as a suspect, none of us believed it. We didn't want to believe it. But you did it all. His blatant declaration, not just an accusation, pissed me off enough to have decked him had I been uncuffed. I couldn't understand what he meant by quote-unquote all. The affidavit mentioned three different retail store fires in the greater Los Angeles area. I was aware of only one of the three. It had occurred at the People's Department Store in nearby Highland Park. I looked at Cornelson and Matassa and I said, You're fucking crazy. This is fantasy. This has got to be a joke. Overwhelmed by the situation and afraid to say anything, I limited my responses and let Cornelson rattle on. An old interrogation trick is to maintain silence, let the other person fill in the void. I'll let Larry do his trash talk. And dreamers, I've heard of law enforcement using interrogation tricks, as Orr called it, but 
it's the cops are the ones that have the interrogation tricks or tactics or is sitting here telling us as we're reading his writings that he's the one that has tricks to somehow outsmart or outwit the interrogators. Maybe he did. Maybe he thought that he was going to be ready for this day. Nah, he probably wasn't ready. He was so arrogant and narcissistic. I don't think he ever thought that he was going to get caught. But he just thought he was the smartest guy in the room. So when they're sitting there interrogating him, he thinks he's the one getting over on them. So Orr continued. I said, Larry, I haven't done an effing thing. This is all BS. This was followed by a feeble, good cop slash bad cop routine straight out of Police Academy 3. Cornelson saw me ready to clam up and ask for a lawyer and reverted to another one of their textbook maneuvers. All right, John, he said. This is as hard on us as it is on you. Let's talk off the record for a minute. Matassa chimed in. John, you're the last person we wanted to arrest. We need you to help us understand why. I saw Larry grimace at Matassa's intrusion that effectively diluted the original off-the-record offer. While watching Matassa, I missed Cornelson's eye or head jerk, but I expected it anyway. Matassa mumbled something to his superior and stepped out. Cornelson looked back at me. Off the record, John. Why? Tempted to jump into his face with a comeback, I felt pity for this middle-aged man who, by his lack of interview skills, confirmed my theory of the ATF as Keystone Cops. I was disappointed as well as angry. So, Dreamers, what I'm getting from this is that Orr is continually attempting to establish his superiority over law enforcement, which had been a thing that plagued him his entire adult life. His only way of coping with the worst position he could be in, in the face of a police officer, cuffed and under arrest, was to belittle them and to criticize all of their work. I said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I didn't do anything, so let's just get the procedure moving. Cornelson stepped outside. While he was gone, I scanned the affidavit and the support information attached. I found several pages and maps listing two or three series of fires that occurred in Central California. I then realized the scope of the ATF's investigation. I was aware of the 1987 Fresno series, but I never heard about the discovery of a fingerprint associated with one of the fires. The documents relating to the fingerprint indicated that it was mine. I'd never been in Bakersfield my entire life. Through it, yes, but never in it. The accusation seemed indefensible. So when Orr was arrested, investigators collected a bag that he usually carried with him, as well as all of his firearms. The bag contained a cassette recorder, a corkscrew, a pair of binoculars, some brown paper sacks, one pack of Camel cigarettes unfiltered, a book of matches, a Ziploc bag filled with rubber bands, and a lighter. In the back, hidden under the floor mat, was a spiral pad of yellow-lined paper. The same type of cigarettes and yellow paper had been found at several of the fire locations where the delayed incendiary devices didn't burn up in the fire. They also collected a couple copies of Orr's manuscript, Points of Origin, 
as well as something that was kind of interesting in a briefcase that belonged to him. It was a badge, a real official looking badge with the fire department emblem across it. But the thing is, it was a snap on, snap off emblem. And along with it was another emblem. It was also able to snap on and snap off. It fit and it said police across it. We knew about Orr's proclivities for behaving like a cop, and the task force began to believe that Orr was regularly posing as a member of law enforcement. Orr later said that the reason he did this was so he could pose as a burglary detective instead of an arson investigator, so he wouldn't tip off any suspects that might be arsonists, that he only used it on a handful of occasions. And he even wrote, the last thing I ever wanted to be was a real cop. My loyalties were with the fire service. Law enforcement was just a sideline. But so many people knew this to be completely untrue. They knew that he wanted to be a cop more than anything. And they mocked him for it. The badge proved that they were right all along. Orr was transported to the federal court, which is located in downtown Los Angeles. He met with one of their defense attorneys and he was told that the U.S. attorney has already recommended that Orr be held without bail. After that, he was sent to the detention center. His next hearing would be in two weeks. He got in touch with his wife, Wanda, and asked her to call Jack Durakjian. I looked up the name to find a pronunciation, and amazingly, there is none. I've always been able to find pronunciation help on every word that I've decided that I need help pronouncing. And I'm saying it the best that I can. It's Durakjian, D-I-R-A-K-J-I-A-N. The task force members who interrogated or were kind of criticized by their peers for not being able to get more information out of him. But I don't think for a second or would ever, ever speak to any of them or answer any of their questions, much less provide them with a confession. Taking responsibility for anything is not in Orr's wheelhouse. He spent his entire life blaming everybody else for his shortcomings and inadequacies. And we know he had countless shortcomings and inadequacies. And he never acknowledged them as being a part of who he was. He was incapable of accepting them. He made excuses or he just blamed other people. The question came up in the book as to whether or not Orr was a sociopath or a psychopath. From what we know about Orr, I think it's safe to say that he's more of a psychopath. No conscience, manipulative yet charming, able to lead a semblance of a normal life. Whereas a sociopath can feel little empathy, they're more erratic, they're prone to feel extreme rage and unable to lead a normal life. In Fire Lover, it said, if Orr was a psychopath, a man with a giant ego and a dwarfed superego, conscienceless, manipulative, deceptive, with shallow emotions, who cannot truly give or receive love, an impulsive thrill seeker who is glib and grandiose, who cannot empathize or feel responsibility for his criminal behavior, then no interrogation tactics would have been effective. Bottom line, John Orr was never going to feel any remorse for his crimes, nor was he ever going to feel any kind of camaraderie with his fellow firefighters. The brotherhood vibe was not going to be there for him. That's why when his colleagues, the ones that he knew and worked with, 
when they tried to get him with those lines like, we never wanted to arrest you. We didn't want to believe this. That was never going to work on Orr because he felt no allegiance to them. They weren't going to get a confession out of him. It was impossible to try to play him and his feelings. When investigators showed up at Orr's fire station to conduct a search of his office, his partner, Joe Lopez, was really taken aback. He had no idea about any of this. Orr had been very strategic when it came to Joe Lopez. He made sure that they worked apart, often. The search of Orr's office uncovered a bunch of pictures and videos of arsons that Orr took. They also found out what Orr had done about the tracking device that he discovered under his car. In his desk, he had the pictures of the device and the contact information for the ATF agent named Howard Sanders, who was the one who delivered the pillow pyro flyers to Orr in person. There was a note where Orr wrote the ATF frequency code, the megahertz rating, and the ATF property identification numbers of the tracking device showing that it belonged to the ATF, and the address and phone number of the electronic suppliers where the ATF obtained the device. So Orr did know that they were tracking him and his car. Later on, inside Orr's bag that they collected from his house, he had the cigarettes and matches and stuff. They also found a portfolio that had more pictures of the tracking device, so they could see that Orr had been somewhat worried about it. But even though he knew that he was under investigation to an extent, he eventually picked back up with the fire starting. The thing he didn't do was set fires to any pillows or foam items inside any more retail stores. His next fires were brush fires and the one at the Warner Brothers studio. This was eventually going to cause problems for Orr because he clearly was aware that he was a person of interest in the ATF investigation, yet he never made any attempt to contact the ATF or to inquire about it or speak to them and ask what are you guys doing? Why are you watching me? Why are you surveilling me? That was going to be really difficult for him to explain away. There is another interesting thing that was found amongst Orr's things when his homework and car were searched. And it was some letters that he wrote. And I want to share them with you because we know how the story ends. And we know that he's attempting to sound like a serial arsonist profiler. But we also know he's talking about himself. He may have even had an impact on how arsonists would go on to be profiled in the future. So the copies of the letters that they found accompanied his manuscript. They were sent to prospective publishers that Orr was reaching out to, and they were meant to give a bit of an explanation and a backstory as to what the manuscript was all about and what it was based on. One of them he wrote and mailed off to a literary agency on April 17, 1991, almost eight months before his arrest. It read, Common criminal. And the word common is in quotation marks. Common criminals seem to have one characteristic they all share. The need to distance themselves from their crimes as quickly as possible. All criminals, that is, except the arsonist. Arsonist stay close by 
and sometimes they even participate in the discovery and eventual extinguishment of, quote-unquote, their fires. Bizarre? Indeed. With a criminal so close at hand, why is it that the crime of arson has the lowest arrest and conviction rate of all? The reason is simple. The arsonist is weak and insecure and usually perpetrates his crimes in the dark, generally in seclusion. Sometimes he uses time delays. Additionally, the evidence is almost always destroyed, if not by fire, then by firefighters during extinguishment. Arsonists are not greed-motivated, like the quote-unquote common criminal. So dreamers here, like I said, we know that Orr is talking about himself. And he has the insight enough to say that the arsonist is weak and insecure. I mean, that's some pretty on-point self-awareness, if I do say so myself. We know this about him. We know it because he has demonstrated both of those traits, weak and insecure, over and over again as we have gone through this case. However, Orr would never say this about himself outright. He is very pompous, very self-absorbed, on the surface. Deep down, we know he is exactly what he has described the arsonist to be. At the same time, he also sets arsonists apart he holds them in higher regard by highlighting the difference between an arsonist and the run-of-the-mill common criminal. His letter continued, I have been a professional firefighter for over 20 years, with the last 10 devoted to full-time arson investigation for the fire department in the Los Angeles area. With a clearance of over 400 cases, I have found that the true pyromaniac is responsible for only 5% of all fires, but generally causes the most destruction and sets the most dangerous types of fires. My novel, Point of Origin, is a fact-based work that follows the pattern of an actual arsonist who has been setting serial fires in California over the past eight years. He has not been identified or apprehended and probably will not be in the near future. As in the real case, the arsonist in my novel is a firefighter. So dreamers, we can see the dead giveaway here. John Orr is saying his novel is fact-based and he gives us the actual facts. There is a serial arsonist in California that has been setting fires for eight years. I guess we couldn't say for sure exactly when Orr started because he will maintain his innocence, but eight years goes back to 1983 from the time of this letter that he wrote. And the Ole's fire happened in 1984, the fire where four people died. The task force wasn't even looking at that yet. So the timeline in the novel fits. He also said that they haven't been able to identify or apprehend him and probably won't. That was Orr's overconfidence that he was never going to get caught. But he said, and this is important to the facts of the case against him, he wrote, as in the real case, the arsonist in my novel is a firefighter. He didn't say that he theorized the arsonist was a firefighter. He said the arsonist is a firefighter. Nobody knew what the serial arsonist did for a living, except for John Orr. Marvin Casey suspected it in 1987, but nobody believed him. And that goes to show that none of the fire investigators who worked on any of the fires set in that time 
thought that the arsonist was a firefighter. And yet, Orr wrote it as a fact in that one line in his letter. As in the real case, the arsonist in my novel is a firefighter. It wouldn't be until eight months after he wrote that a firefighter would indeed be arrested for being the serial arsonist. It was very damning evidence against him. The second letter that was found was sent to the Writer's Digest Criticism Service on July 28, 1991, and it read, My completed manuscript is my first attempt at fiction after writing a series of articles for a fire service magazine, the American Fire Journal. I am a firefighter, an arson investigator, actually, with 21 years of fire service. Point of Origin is the story of a serial arsonist and the investigator who tracks him in Southern California. Aaron, the arsonist, is actually a firefighter, and Phil Langtree slowly develops a theory that the suspect is somehow related to the fire department. My arsonist is sexually and psychologically motivated, and Points of Origin is somewhat fact-based. There is an arsonist plying his trade in the West, and he sets the same types of fires portrayed in my novel. The investigation is continuing. So here again, Orr is saying that his novel is fact-based, yet he manages to come up with a motive for the crimes without it actually having been solved. He describes the arsons as being sexually and psychologically motivated. Now, he does say that this is fiction, but I mean, let's be real. We know that Orr is talking about himself, and he's pretty much nailed down the motive right there for investigators, as only he would know and understand that about himself, that these fires get him off. In another letter, it was actually a postscript at the end that grabbed everyone's attention. It read, My novel is fiction, but is based on a real arsonist who has again hit the L.A. area earlier this year doing over $12 million in damage. The investigation now has federal assistance and could be linked to fires outside of California. It is my feeling that the arsonist could be a firefighter, but I'm not directly linked to the investigation and cannot confirm this fact. So here the fires that Orr was referring to earlier in the year was the series of 19 fires starting from December of 1990 that ended in March of 1991. The most destructive one was the fire at the DNM yardage store in the city of Lawndale, which prompted the involvement of the federal agency, the ATF. But then Orr referred to fires outside of California. I'm not sure if Orr ever set any fires in another state. He could have been referring to fires outside of Southern California. It is a big state. It often gets talked about being divided into two or three separate states, but it definitely got the attention of investigators. There was one more letter that was the most interesting to investigators. It was sent to a different literary agent and was dated June 3, 1991. It read, My work is a fact-based novel of an ongoing investigation here on the West Coast. A serial arsonist is setting fires throughout the West and is quite possibly a firefighter. The series has been going on for over five years, and I was even considered a suspect at one point. In early May of this year, I found a radio tracking device attached to my car in San Luis Obispo while attending a training conference. 
Ironically, my protagonist experiences the same situation. I had already written the chapter dealing with the protagonist being tailed before I found that I was being followed. By the way, I am not the arsonist and the investigation out here continues. My work is fictional. The reason why this letter was so damning is the fact that John Orr put it in writing that he was a suspect and found a tracking device on his car. And it's a clear indication that he knew that he was the subject of the investigation, yet he never came forward to talk to anybody about it. Wouldn't that have been the normal reaction? If you found out you were being investigated for a crime, if you were innocent, wouldn't you reach out to law enforcement, especially if you worked so closely with them and they were your colleagues and some of them his friends? Wouldn't you question what the hell was going on? Why are you all putting a tracking device on my car? He never took the opportunity to question them or to deny being the arsonist. To the task force, this was indicative of him being guilty, having a consciousness of guilt. But for me, I don't think John Orr ever asked or confronted anybody about it because I don't think he had the balls to do it. Two days after his arrest, we, well, I mean me, I get some good news here. The attorney that John Orr wanted to hire with the name Jack Dirac-Gian, whatever, he wasn't going to take Orr's case because he was more of a civil kind of guy, not a criminal guy. So we're not going to have to be butchering his name as we go along here. But he knew a guy, a criminal defense attorney named Doug McCann. I'll tell you what the book said that Orr had to say about this new attorney because he did write about him too. Orr said, I hated McCann instantly, but it was obvious that Jack wanted Doug to represent me. Dreamers, it bugs me that Orr goes back and forth between calling people by their first names sometimes and their last names at other times. So to me, it just goes to show that John Orr isn't as good of a writer as he seems to think that he is because he has all these inconsistencies all over the place. He continued, I listened to the staccato presentation of McCann outlining defense strategy. And what Orr means by that is that McCann is long-winded and repetitive. Only 32 years old. He cut off his superior and me, choosing to take control of our brief interview. He was arrogant, opinionated, sly, and a complete asshole. I retained him on the spot. I wanted a cutthroat to go after the feds who had exposed Wanda and me to this travesty. So here, dreamers, Orr has this superiority complex due to the fact that this guy is younger than him, but he's taking charge of the case. Which, duh, he's the attorney here, and Orr really doesn't have much of a leg to stand on because, really, he's nothing anymore. He's nothing but a criminal defendant. He used to be a firefighter. He used to be an arson investigator, but now he's a nobody. And even though it wasn't what Orr really wanted, he wanted to be a cop, but he never measured up. Now, he's not even his backup career anymore. It had become his entire identity and it was gone. Anyone who comes along and highlights how much of a nobody or has become, he has to hate that person in order to feel better about himself. Remember, he said it. The arsonist is weak and insecure. 
Then Orr takes control of the whole dynamic by saying he hired him because he's the kind of asshole that I want going after the feds. We all know that Orr never liked law enforcement. He didn't like the federal agents. And his rage and hatred towards them has probably only built up since he's been taken into custody. Orr's writing continued. He required a $10,000 retainer. Wanda made the arrangements, and early next week, Doug announced that he'd move the bail review hearing up to December 10th. This pleased me immensely and renewed my faith in the man, despite both Wanda and I initially wondering if he was the right choice. He was young enough to be our son. Now, dreamers, that isn't exactly true, because at this time, John Orr was 42 years old. His attorney was 32 so I don't know why he would exaggerate something like that. Anyway, Orr wrapped up what he was writing about his attorney. He wrote, Later, I'd go on to wish that Doug had been devoured at birth. For the life of me, I cannot understand why Orr hired an attorney that he hated so much. This was going to be a really intricate case. There are going to be so many fires and so many charges across so many jurisdictions. He was going to be tried in federal court. He was going to be tried in state court. But, you know, when you think about it, or would have probably disliked any lawyer, no matter who he hired, no matter how many he tried, or did not keep people around for very long. He had a revolving door of partners at work. He had a revolving door of wives, not to mention a revolving door of women in general. He didn't really keep any close friends. If he did have friends, the relationship was very thin. Probably because, as Orr said, the arsonist works alone, in the dark, in seclusion. Orr's bail was set at $50,000 and his wife used the house to secure it. By December 18th, Orr was back home with an ankle monitor. And you know, he had a tremendous amount of support from people who knew him. His mom started coming around too, the one who had walked out on the family all those years earlier and never looked back. They were living on Wanda's paycheck alone, so his mom started helping out whichever way she could. She would buy groceries or help out with uh, basic expenses. Wanda, she checked out from having anything to do with the case. She wanted no part of it. She didn't want to talk to their attorney. She didn't want to talk to the media. She just stayed out of it as best she could, which is probably exactly what Orr needed a wife to be like. I don't think Orr could put up with a strong wife. I think he is such a small man that he wouldn't be able to deal with a wife who would be bitching at him about bringing up all these problems. I think Wanda just learned to be quiet and supportive and just be in the background. So there's one really important fire that the task force hasn't really touched on yet. There are probably hundreds of fires that they're never going to know about, but there is only one where people died. Following Orr being taken into custody, the task force spent some time calling people who had worked with Orr in the past. 
supervisors, bosses, other arson investigators to let them know about his arrest and the charges that he was facing. One of the people they contacted was a gentleman by the name of Jim Allen. He worked at the fire marshal's office and he and his wife were friends with both John Orr and Wanda Orr. Matassa called him to let him know personally. It was a tough pill to swallow. To find out a trusted friend and colleague, someone who supposedly dedicated their life to saving lives, would turn out to be anything but. Jim Allen was shocked. He had a difficult time processing what he was being told. As they talked, he was able to ask a few questions. And just as they were about to wrap up their phone call, Jim had one last thing that he wanted to say. You guys might want to go back and reinvestigate the 1984 Ole's Home Center fire in South Pasadena. Mike Matassa remembered the fire. He was actually there that day too, but it was very early on in his career. He wondered, what about that fire? It was way earlier than anything that they were looking at. Well, Jim told him ever since the day of that fire, John Orr has been consumed with it, literally obsessed. He was infuriated when investigators officially ruled it to be an accidental fire. Since that fire happened, Orr had talked about it frequently, and he has never stopped talking about it in the seven years since it happened. When they hung up the phone, it was like something suddenly clicked for Matassa. He picked up Orr's manuscript and started flipping through the pages. There was something that he read about that felt similar. In points of origin, it was called Cal's Hardware Store, located in South Pasadena. The entire task force read about Cal's Hardware, but nobody ever put the two and two together and linked it to the Ole's Home Center. It was a fire that was long before the ones that they were investigating. The task force reread the section together. In Orr's manuscript, he wrote that there were five victims that perished at the Cal's fire. In the real fire, there were four victims. But the fire in the manuscript and the fire in real life had a victim that was a young boy. In the manuscript, Orr wrote that the members of law enforcement assigned to investigate the arson were so stupid that they failed to realize that the fire was an arson and ended up ruling it an accident. So the firefighter turned arsonist was forced to start another fire at a home improvement store just to prove how dumb the cops were. Once the task force read and reread the chapter in Orr's manuscript about Cal's fire, any doubts that any of them may have had that Orr was their guy faded away. As they sat there and read about the fictional victims that died in the fictional fire, the more they felt that they really needed to stop and reach back to 1984 and revisit the real fire. Because there were real victims that died. What's even more chilling was the fact that the boy who died in the fictional fire and the boy who died in the real fire they were both toddlers named Matthew. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop the story here. 
In the next part, we are going to continue discussing the ongoing investigation and the building of the case of the United States of America versus John Leonard Orr. They're going to see if they're going to be able to turn their arson case into a quadruple murder case and make sure that Orr never has the chance to light another fire or hurt another person ever again. So keep a lookout for part five of this series coming up shortly. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook, join the discussion group, support us on Patreon if you have a dollar or two to spare each month, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and I'm trying to do a little bit more on TikTok, but it's mostly my dogs. Thank you all so much for listening to this series. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. (laughs) 